Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some way. Today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Nigela Mukmin on. Hello. Hello. It's so nice to see you. Thank you. It's great to be here. A recent transplant to Los Angeles. So welcome. <laughs> um, for those of you who are not as familiar with Nigela's work, please let me give you an introduction. Uh, in the form of a bio. Uh, Nigela is a writer and filmmaker from the East Bay area. She was named one of 25 new faces of independent film by Filmmaker Magazine in 2017. She tells stories about black girls and women who find themselves between worlds and identities. Her short films have screened at festivals and venues across the country. Her filmmaking and screenwriting have been supported by Sundance Institute, IFP, Film Independent, the Islamic Scholarship Fund, Women in Film LA, and the Princess Grace Foundation. In 2014, she was selected for the Sundance Institute Screenwriters Intensive, and she was the winner of the Grand Jury Prize for Best Screenplay at the 2014 Urban World Film Festival for her script, Noor. Last July, Nigella attended the 2017 Sundance Institute Sound and Music Design Lab at Skywalker Ranch. All of that was getting in to do her feature film, which is called Gin, starring Zoe Renee and Simone Misik, um, premiered in narrative competition at the 2018 South by Southwest West Film Festival, which is where I heard about Nigel's work. Um, and that actually won her the Special Jury Recognition Award for screenwriting, correct? Yes. Um, the film tells the story of a high school senior whose mother becomes taken by the beliefs and practices of Islam, which sets up a series of trials for the girl as she tries to navigate her own belief systems. Um, aside from that, she also, um, Nigela, not this girl, <laughs> Nigela also had her short film Dream acquired by Issa Rae Productions for online streaming. Can you still see that? Yes. Yes. Okay. It's there right now. It's there right Always now. It's there. <laughs> and that's called Dream. Uh, mm -hmm. In 2018, she directed an episode of Ava DuVernay's Queen Sugar, like many of our guests, which is wonderful. Yes. It's so great to just look at her roster and be like, okay, that's a guest. That's a guest. Can we call her? It's, she's making my job so much easier. And in June, Nigella won the Best Screenplay Award for Gin at the 2018 American Black Film Festival. So that's Nigella. Hi. Um, one of the films... Okay, I have to say, the film that you chose is one that I never saw because I thought I would be too obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where I didn't have the emotional space for a new relationship in my life. Yeah. <laughs> so I just never watched it because I thought it would be too much for me. Wow, that's so interesting. It's it's totally my thing. It's a it's a weird, yeah, psychological dance thriller because Nigella chose Black Swan. Can yes. you tell me a little bit about why you chose that to talk about today? When I saw the film in 2010, I was just struck by um, the main character, um, played by Natalie Portman, Nina Sayers, and her her drive to be the perfect artist and just be the best ballerina that she could be. And I think I just, I really related to that mm. character. I mean, not to that extreme of like having delusions and hallucinations about... Yeah, we would hope that you... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I probably wouldn't be here right now, but... Um, <laughs> I think throughout my life, I've really worked really hard, especially when it comes to film and writing, to, mm -hmm. to be where I am to the point where I've sacrificed a lot of things in order to, to be here and to be making films. And so I just, 
I related on a, an emotional level to her to her struggle and to that performance. And it was it just it spoke to me in that way. And it was really disturbing. And there was this mother daughter relationship that was really eerie and disturbing and, and fascinating to me about just how overprotective her mother was, um, how her mother had kind of funneled her dreams into her daughter, but at the same time mm-hmm. was kind of holding her daughter back in terms of her growth as a woman. And it was just like all those threads that spoke to me. Um, really interested in in those family dynamics and I'm really close with my mother and Mm -hmm. those are those relationships you know kind of they come through in my films a lot so it was a lot with the characters that really grabbed me in terms of Black Swan when I saw it. All right we are definitely you've touched on a lot of things that we are definitely going to get into in more depth Uh, but for those who haven't seen Black Swan like myself today although I did watch it obviously (laughs) um, today's episode will give you some spoilers but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch my motto is that it's not what happens but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching still if you would like to pause this and watch Black Swan now is your chance And since you're back and we didn't lose you, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of Black Swan. Written by Mark Heyman, John McLaughlin, and Andre Hines, and directed by Darren Aronofsky for release in 2010, Black Swan stars Natalie Portman as Nina, a childlike 28-year-old who's auditioning for the lead in Swan Lake after the company Prima Ballerina, played by Winona Ryder. I didn't know she was in the movie. I was so excited. Um, (laughs) She's forced to retire. Artistic director Thomas, or Toma thinks Nina's too goody-goody to embody the black swan. When Thomas, when Toma, I keep saying it, when Toma kisses Nina, she gets scared and bites his lip hard and thinks she'll never get the part. But she's surprised to find she gets it anyway. Rehearsals are a bear for Nina. Tom, Toma keeps pushing her to lose control, but she's the definition of a control freak. And her infantilizing mother doesn't help the situation. Mother's played by Barbara Hershey for for those who didn't recognize her. There's also the problem of the strange bleeding and scarring on her back. Oh, and Nina's definitely a skin picker. Uh, I relate. Uh, meanwhile, a new dancer from San Francisco, Lily, joins the company. She's carefree and spirited and everything Nina wishes she could be. After a rocky start, the two begin a friendship, however, when Lily takes Nina to dinner and a club and convinces her to relax with some ecstasy. Nina completely loses control and has sex with two men in a bathroom before going home and having sex with Lily, or maybe not Lily? I don't know. The thing is that Nina's been seeing things, most often her shadow self. Nina sleeps through her rehearsal start and earns the ire of Toma, but when Lily tells Nina that she never came home with her, Nina really starts to lose it and also lose control, making her a very good black swan, actually. At home, Nina begins sprouting wings and transforming into a swan, literally, and fights tooth and nail with her mother, but Nina gets her way and escapes to the theater to perform. In the middle of the performance, she thinks she stabs Lily, but as Nina dances like there's no tomorrow, we get the sinking feeling that she has actually just been fighting herself all this time. I mean, it's more than that. Um, But I want to get into what you brought up first, which is that kind of perfectionism and the identifying with that. I think a lot of women who did identify with this movie um, understood the burden of perfection that we do put on women more often than we put on men. Definitely. And it's something where uh, Darren Aronofsky made the point where a lot of men called him out in this for saying that this is a misogynist movie. And he was like, talk to Natalie Portman. It's not a misogynist movie. Hmm. Um, And he 
you know, he was like, women really love this movie for a reason. And like, maybe it means something that men are telling you that it's misogynist. You know, like, what does that mean to a story? Um, but perfectionism. Uh, I mean, I, I too, I was, were you a dancer? You know, I grew up going to dance classes mm -hmm. and I did African dance and hip hop dance all throughout, you know, elementary, junior high. And then in college, I was a part of like some dance groups mm -hmm. and I still, I love dancing. And I feel like if I wasn't a filmmaker, I'd probably be like a singer and a dancer. So, yeah. I mean, and then you get to put dance in your film. Yeah. Too. It's like, like the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, but there's there is a perfectionism to some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea that in Darren Aronofsky's film, dance is the perfection. It's the thing to reach. It's ballet. It has to be precise. And then I look at your film and your lead character escapes into dance, sometimes as a release mm -hmm. away from other things. And Definitely. so those are two kind of varying sides of, I think, the femininity of of that um uh, body movement. Definitely. And in my film, you know, the main character, Summer, for her dances is freedom. Mm -hmm. And so she's able to just be herself fully when she's dancing. And I think in Black Swan, Nina is very much trying to achieve, you know, something, an, an approval, mm -hmm. um, get approval from Toma and from, you know, kind of the company and her mother in terms of what she's trying to achieve as a ballerina in a lot of ways. And for her to transform into the black swan is to let go and to not be so concerned with all of those people's expectations, which mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because it comes kind of full circle into mm -hmm. it being a release. Yeah. Even if it is torturing her yeah yeah because like in in that kind of final scene in black swan where she comes out as the black swan it's like she's transformed into a totally different person like just the way her her body her movements are so loose and i mean it's just it's a it's a really really beautiful performance to see like an actress kind of go from like really rigid and really kind of like guarded and even like the the, the tone of her voice throughout the film um, is very like low and kind of asking permission mm -hmm. into a more like fluid just you know like self-possessed person it was it was really interesting to see that and that's I mean that's something great that you're bringing up too is the fact that Natalie Portman did have to train for I think like a year in ballet mm -hmm. to do because she did like 90% of the dancing in this, which is incredible. Um, but she uh, had to learn how to do, um, I can't remember the term for it, but it's essentially dance acting. It's the kind of acting that you do as a dancer where you're like, your eyes are hitting certain points and you have to look in certain places um, uh, and evoke a certain kind of feeling through the body movements and that kind of stuff. So she actually really studied that kind of um, uh, emotive body movement. And I think that that, I mean, you can see it. There's You can definitely see it. Yeah, there's like scenes where she's like doing pirouettes and like spinning. And you can see like that determination like in her eyes, like the camera's like spinning with her. It's like a total like immersive experience. Yeah. And I think that's what I really enjoyed about the film is that the camera is like an extension of the dance and of the performance. And it's not yes. just like this static kind of shot, but like it's it's moving along with the 
dancers with her. And so we're like really into that experience with her and like all the trauma that she's kind of going through. I'm curious, how how did you direct your actors when they were doing the, the dancing sequences? In yeah. Your film. So we had a choreographer who um, trained them for the two um, dance numbers that they did. And mm-hmm. so um, I over oversaw that. Like I, I told him what kind of style of dance I wanted, how I wanted kind of the movements to be carried out. And he took my um, direction and then taught them the, the dance. But um, I definitely wanted each character's personality to come through, mm-hmm. even though that they're all doing a choreographed um, dance. I wanted each each girl's like personality to really um, come through. So Summer's definitely the leader. She's definitely the one who is teaching them. Um, who, yeah, she's got like shoulders back. Yeah, like, her shoulders are back. She's very confident. Like yeah. this is my realm. You have her friend Tati who is um, very confident in terms of her sexuality and just kind of like very loose with her movements. Yeah, more and not, hips I saw Yeah, her, more sure, hips yeah. and like more, more like kind of like a sexual nature. And then her best friend Blaine who is just like that that best friend that you can always talk to who's just having a good time you know like she loves dancing but not as much as summer it's not like mm-hmm. her life dream so she's there to really just kind of be that that um you know that person in between the two the two dancers of, of Tati and summer yeah so yeah. yeah you have to get the the personality through the dance because you don't you don't have time to waste it's like if you're going to put a dance in then it has to also convey their their personalities their their motives who they are Definitely. Yeah. And it was an extension of of Summer's personality and just that she's she's moving a lot in the film. Like she likes to keep like being on her bike or or just walking around or like she doesn't want to be kind of like stuck anywhere. So like dancing for her is like a way for her to just keep moving and keep, you know, getting through life. It's really interesting. I mean, uh, we're going to I'm going to take a quick break, but I want to get back into um, the idea of a character who's constantly moving and how to capture that on camera. Mm -hmm. So one quick break and we'll be right back. Cool. I listen to Reading Glasses because Bria and Mallory have great tips. You're a comics reader and you want to use a library-connected app, you can try out Hoopla. I listen for the author interviews. I'm mad at myself that I waited as long as I did to start reading Joan Didion. They give me reading advice I didn't even know I needed. If you go in person to an event and go up to an author or a filmmaker or anybody and tell them what they you don't like about their work, you're a trash baby. I, look, I understand you didn't like Heroes Season 3. That's fine. I, like, <laughs> I don't actually need to know that information. I'm Brea Grant. And I'm Mallory O'Mara. We're Reading Glasses and we solve all your bookish problems every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined today by Nigela Bookman. Hello. Hello. We're talking about Black Swan, and I am about to um, drill Nigela about uh, handheld cameras versus uh, cameras on sticks and and when and how and what those things do for your movie. Okay, so um, I find the element of handheld cameras to be um, 
very interesting to the tone and execution of films, but specifically this one. Aronofsky said, quote, the whole cinema verite handheld approach to The Wrestler was a big risk to bring over into this ballet film because I had never seen a suspenseful film that had this handheld camera, and I didn't know if it would work. I was worried that during a really scary scene, everyone would wonder why Natalie wouldn't turn to the cameraman and go, help! But then we were like, fuck it, let's just go for it. It's never been done, and I really enjoyed having a man hold the camera so that I could really move the camera in ways that you can't in any other way. The result of that is that the first third of the film has a very different feel than the last half of the film because it's got this very naturalistic thing, which I think is actually kind of cool. It makes people think they're watching a very different type of movie that can't ever freak out the way it freaks out, yet it gives you that immediacy of being in the moment and being in this other world with little Hints in general, it just feels like a documentary at the beginning. That's a long way of discussing definitely. that, but I mean, like, it's a it makes perfect sense. It definitely makes perfect sense, and I think once Nina's character is really going through those hallucinations and those delusions around mm-hmm. who she is, if um, you know she has this double, if you know what kind of Lily's role is and kind of her downfall to be within that psychology and to be within her mind Mm -hmm. and right there, like really does a lot for the viewer. um, I think in terms of that film, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to capture that kind of frenetic energy Mm -hmm. with just a, you know, a camera that's on sticks, a camera that's not moving. It's, it's, it seems, it seems strange that we haven't had more thrillers or something like that on on handheld before Black Swan. Definitely, because I mean, it it's there's a lot of like jumps, you know, like with their sound design. There's a lot of times where, you know, someone's just standing in the doorway and you hear a sound and then it jumps and the camera jumps too. And mm-hmm. I just feel like that all of that added up just gives this sense of, um, you know, unease, disease that you kind of just want to like know like what what is this adding up to so i definitely felt that way yeah it's just it's a little bit disorienting yeah for sure and i mean that's the whole point of the film it's it's wonderful the way that aronofsky works um oh i think you can have mixed feelings on him i happen to be a person who just loves everything that he does even if i don't want to i'm like Mm -hmm. oh really you made another movie for me god damn it yeah like that's the way that it feels um but he really looks at every element of the film and how it works towards um, the tone or the feeling that he's trying to evoke. And I just really appreciate that kind of um, focus. Yeah. I remember seeing Requiem for a Dream when I was, was I in film school when I saw that? I think so. Possibly. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> it's a this, film school movie. Yeah, sure. I couldn't even sleep. Like I couldn't <laughs> sleep at night. Um, with just how every detail was, I think, like, you know, every detail of, of those characters' addiction was, like, given a very extensive treatment in terms of the camera. You know, the pupils on their eyes, like, mm-hmm. the the injection of the drug, the arm, someone's arm kind of, like, yeah. eroding. Like, it was just, like, I was up close with everything that these characters were going through with their addiction and it, it, it humanized them in a way and it just made it something that was a complete nightmare that I knew I never would want to go through. Yeah, so. I was like, oh, really scared straight. I am. Okay. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to get into a little bit about the, um, the, the character of Summer in your movie and then the character of um, 
Nina and Black Swan, because uh, neither of them are, um, quote unquote, like great people, you know, like they're they're like they're they're so true, right? like they're good people, but they like uh, you know I'm 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 always struck when I see characters making grave missteps in mm-hmm. films because it you know like it's just it doesn't happen as Especially much as you for would women, think. yeah, you know, and not be written off, yeah. Into- it's, it's weird. Um, you have to have the right actor, I think, who can portray that. And I, I think Natalie Portman, the way that the way that Aronofsky says uh, it is, quote, movies have really turned our heroes into one dimensional characters. And you sort of really have to love these characters in most films. And I just people aren't really that way. Uh, and so this dancer is, is filled with ambition and stress and she's strapped and she's a prisoner. I was able to go there partly because I know people love Natalie Portman. So I got the sympathy votes very early on from her. So I was comfortable with pushing her that way. Definitely. Because she gets violent. She is. She's just <laughs> destructive. Self-destructive and destructive to other people. Yeah. You know, when she, there's a part where she like, uh, you know, slams her mom's fingers in the door, you know, like, like twice. Pull. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, it's so, I'm just like, uh, I couldn't even watch that. I was like, I don't know if I can watch this um, repeatedly. Like, it's, it's painful to yeah. watch. Um, and she's just like anything, you know, she, everything is, is about dance. And so if anyone or anything gets in the way of that, she's going to take take that person or that thing down. I have to go. No, no, let me down. Go with me. Staying in here until you feel better. Where is it? This rule's destroying you. Move. Move! What happened to my sweet girl, huh? She's gone! No, please! You're not well! Let go of me! I can't handle this! I can't! I'm the Swan Queen! You're the one who never left the call! Yeah, And I think that's really, um, you know, that's uh, what, you know, a lot of artists go through. Like, they'll try to put everything on that artistic pursuit and, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever tries to get in the way, they want to, like, tear it down. But I think with with Summer, like, she's not perfect at all. You know, she's a teenager trying to figure out her identity, her life, and she's making mistakes. Um, But at the same time, with the casting of Zoe Renee, who... Um, she's just got this this angelic face. She's got a, a, an innocence to her as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that underscores those actions that she's doing. So I think it does make a difference to have an actor who can convey those those threads and those nuances without just being like a one note a one note um, performer. And yeah, I think definitely. I'm really interested in imperfect women and imperfect characters um, especially when it comes to like black women and black girls I just don't think we have enough like layered portrayals of black girls and black women who are not like the strong figure of perfection um, or have all the answers or the best friend who's just the sidekick like I want to mm-hmm. show these people as as flawed and 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 you know, full of love and, you know, someone you would you would know and you would want to be better in life. That so. that also brings me to another point, because um, you're not just showing um, 
a black girl, you are showing a black Muslim girl, Mm -hmm. which is another representation that uh, we don't often get, I would say, in TV or film. No. Um, I was like, please correct me. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know, this film was so urgent for me is because growing up, I just, I'd never seen this type of, this type of identity um, in that way, in this kind of fleshed out, complicated way in in movies or TV. It's it's a really interesting thing because um, I I'm curious about how communities receive movies like like yours, like Black Swan, because Aronofsky for you know when he was doing research for this the. Ballet community yeah, would not let that. him in, right? So, mm-hmm. like, they're like, "No, um, we don't give a shit about your movie. Like, whatever you can do, what you want, but we don't care." And then, you know, he was able to befriend a choreographer dancer who kind of introduced him to these characters and allowed him into this world. But the reception to Black Swan by dancers was actually very positive because they were like, "Oh, this thriller, which is not like." Uh, what center stage or like step up or whatever like that the, this actually represents the dance world because the dance world like is insane and terrifying but is also our passion and our love and it's the most beautiful thing and so they loved that it was a thriller that it was about kind of like um, you know self annihilation mm-hmm. and um, and I enjoy that this is the representation that they're into <laughs> and I'm curious about um you know, you making this movie about a black Muslim girl, and does that did that worry you at all about you know how it was going to be received? It did worry me early on because I just felt like you know I don't want to be rejected from my community. I don't want my my father to be disappointed like all those things came to me but at the same time I was like, you know what I just have to tell this story. I can't let that you know, stop me from telling the story. Um, Early on, when we were trying to get support for the film, Mm -hmm. just the title alone, Jen, you know, was enough to to have some Muslim people kind of, you know, not want to be involved or not want to be supportive just because um, the Jen spirits can be seen as evil, you know, like the devil is seen as a Jen. So it's like there's there's kind of like that very quick reaction, like, oh, you're making a film called Jen? Like, I don't want to be associated with that. Totally. Um, but what we saw is as we continued to kind of get the film out there and during a, a Kickstarter campaign we did, more and more people, Muslim people, gravitated toward the story and were like, we've never seen, based off the, the description, the synopsis, never seen a story like this and mm-hmm. they related to it. A lot of people, women sent me messages like, I had this same upbringing, please tell this story. And I let that be kind of my fuel my inspiration to keep going yeah, and definitely. now the film is out we've been to several film festivals with it had crowds of of a lot of you know muslim people african-american muslims who have really been supportive and and they can relate because they're like please thank you you know thank you for keeping it real basically like showing like muslim people who are just people mm-hmm. um, and not you know these perfect you know these perfect people who never make a mistake or the terrorists, like there's something in between and we yeah, need God, to see more of a it. Lot in between. Yeah, like we, <laughs> we need to see more of just Muslims who are, you know, going through everyday struggles. And I think um, 
so far the reception has been, you know, really good. And I'm, I really appreciate that people are able to like step outside of like, um, you know, respectability politics or wanting to have that positive portrayal to just want to see a textured representation. I, you know, you're you're talking about the 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 meaning behind gin and the um, the multiple interpretations or different manifestations of gin um, in in old texts, and I'm I'm curious about inspiration from older texts because I do think it's it's really fun when an artist can look at something like a story that we know or a concept that we know quite well and completely re-envision it because mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I mean I love the the classic kind of archetypal archetypal like um you know Greek mythology and that kind of stuff so I, I love Black Swan and I and you know it's an enduring yeah. classic that you know the Tchaikovsky um music is it, I mean, it, it never goes away. It's mm-hmm. always brilliant, no matter um, how it manifests. And I love that Aronofsky was able to see this so differently. This is a, it is a story that we know so well, and yet we're completely surprised by everything in this. And I was hoping you could tell me about finding inspiration in classic texts and what that gives you. Yeah, I think for me, it's about, you know, I grew up, hearing stories, hearing stories from the Quran, hearing stories um, that kind of put put jinn and put like certain beliefs around Islam in, in a certain context. Mm-hmm. And so my father would talk about, you know, you know, the jinn, you know, they they can't let the jinn kind of take you over, can't let the jinn like get in your mind. Um, and I it was for me, it was like, wow, like, what are these beings? Like, who are these these beings who can just kind of like enter into someone's life and possess them to like do, you know, quote unquote, bad things? And so I think for me, I had to really do more more reading and research outside of kind of those stories and the, the kind of interpretations that were, were given to me early mm-hmm. on to see that Jin have free will to do what they want. And there can be, you know, some Jin who who decide to do harm and some who don't and just live a life. And so I don't know. I just was really interested in how how those passed down stories and kind of attitudes toward toward Jin mm-hmm. like influenced me to think in a way. But when I went out and did more research and talked to more people, it wasn't so black and white. And so even yeah. when you read when you read the Quran, it really shows that there's like the 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 kind of like diversity in Jinn. It, it 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 clearly states that some Jinn like have accepted the Quran and some didn't. And so like there's not just one one mm-hmm. type of of spirit who's just out there wreaking havoc on people. And I think if you're a person and you're a teenager who's going through, you know all of these emotions and, and you're 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 wanting to like express your desire or you're wanting to have sex or you're wanting to do that and you're being told that a gin you know is like you're like a gin is taking you over and I don't know there's just a lot there about like how a teenager how someone in that situation mm-hmm. would 
interpret that. And I think that's what Summer is doing. Yeah, because I, I feel like both you and Aronofsky are seeing these texts through a child's eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, if I look at like Aronofsky is just like, yeah, it's the story of a swan. Like he described it as a story of a swan. I'm like, that's something that like a 10 year old boy would say, like, <laughs> obviously, you know, it, and I, I, I find that uh, I find that kind of the innocence and curiosity very fascinating in storytelling. You yeah. Know? And, and I can see that in the way that Summer interprets Jin in the story as well. Like it, it's fresh. It's seen through a child's yeah. eyes. And it's not it's not kind of covered in all of these, you know, all of this kind of rhetoric or or dogma that oh, yeah. um, other people have. And so I have explored Jen through my character of Summer. And so she doesn't have all of the kind of warped kind of interpretations that other people have of it. And so I've had to, you know, when I'm when I'm showing the film in different circles, people ask me repeatedly, like, why do you, you know, did you name your film Jen? And I, I explain it from the character's perspective, her coming into this world, being introduced to this mythology at the same time as she is feeling like she wants to explore her sexuality sexuality and her identity it it speaks to her in that way and it becomes like otherworldly and it becomes like you know a part of her awakening yeah like you take from it what you need at that point definitely and i think it speaks to black swan too it's a part of you know nina's awakening she's having a sexual awakening it is it is i mean much later in life yeah how old because i was reading something that said she was 28 yeah she's 28 I was like, that disturbed me even more because when I originally saw the film, I assumed she was like maybe early 20s or like younger than that. It's one of those things so that was like, how? <laughs> it makes me like it more because that's the kind of thing. If you put that in a movie, people would be like, oh, well, we like we don't believe that. But it's also it's kind of like a like an old school horror concept that you would have kind of like a, a young spinster who's yes. just like, oh, sex is just not a part of my life. And then they, they just kind of get weird. And definitely. Then, but we don't we don't put we don't do that in horror films because people are like, we don't believe it. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, whatever. It made it made it. Yeah, it def- I think it worked. It made it even more like satisfy those horror kind of sensibilities because I was like looking at the production design of her room I'm like she has these teddy bears and like pink and heart hearts on the wall it was just very very girlish and very not like you know I would mm-hmm. think a 28 year old woman would have a room and her how her mom is like coddling her mm-hmm. um, calling her like sweet girl yes, or something like that yes I was like wow it really it, re- re-watching it recently and, and kind of learning and knowing that information really did something to me in my interpretation of it. And we're going to take another quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about the perils of writing a low budget movie uh, okay one quick break I love it. Oh, good stuff. Every time. Uh, Well, I hope that you're enjoying this podcast you're listening to as much as we are pretending to. But anyway, why not listen to another podcast too? It's called the Flop House. And on our podcast, uh, we have recently watched a movie, often a bad movie, and we review it on our podcast, but mainly talk about other stuff and I don't know, hang out. It's all about hanging out, feeling like you're being with your best friends. Who are your best friends? Us three. Dan McCoy, (laughs) Emmy Award-winning writer for The Daily Show, Stuart Wellington, owner of the best bar in Brooklyn, Hinterlands, and Elliot Kalin. 
former Emmy-winning head writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, former head writer of Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Return, uh, so many things. Author of the upcoming children's book, All right, that's enough. The Elliot's credits just go on and on. Yeah, but if you like the idea of listening to three funny guys talk about bad movies, then why not come over and listen to The Flop House? It's uh, available at MaximumFun.org or wherever fine podcasts are found. So get out of here. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined today by Nigela Bukmin, and we are talking about Black Swan. Yes. Um. So I think that every director has two versions of their movie that they have written. One with a budget that they want, and one with the budget that they get. Um, and for Black Swan, they wanted, they wrote it for a budget of $25 million. They got it. 13 million <laughs> and even like a, I think like a week before they went into production or something like a lot of them like the money had fallen through or something too and so they were like okay how do we how do we make this 13 million um and handheld actually helped a lot with that yes because they were like handheld and then they, they digitally painted out a lot of the cameras yeah. and the mirrors you know and didn't they use some some digital cameras on, on in the subway in certain scenes I oh yeah definitely um the dp talking about that yeah. yeah and so you know you kind of piece it together however you can and try to make that kind of stylistically interesting um, you know, and and fit with the themes of what mm-hmm. you're doing. So when they did the digital stuff, it's like, oh, I, I don't really mind that because it seems strange. You know, it streams. It seems dreamlike, and I and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm down with that. Definitely, um, it, de- it definitely didn't take me out. Yeah, there's a lot that could take you out of this, <laughs> and that one did not. <laughs> Sprouting wings. I don't know. <laughs> Picking up, picking off all Maybe the skin your, your, from a finger. Your legs, her legs, like. <laughs> oh yeah, that scene. That, Whoa, oh, that sequence. Wow, That's beautiful. It's he, a great, great sequence. He gets he gets a lot of criticism for going over the top, but I'm like, yeah, kitchen sink. Put all of it in. Yeah, you know? I think at that point, really, he he needed to do it because he was already building up with the with kind of like the, you know, all the shadows and all the kind of you know kind of hints that led up to it. At, at some point, you just have to like yeah. let it rip. No more subtlety. Yeah, <laughs> just do it. Break just her legs. It. Turn her into a bird. Um, <laughs> so I was curious about um, your film, and you know, did you have like a dream budget, or did you already go in saying like I'm not going to get a lot of money to make this, so I'm just going to write something that is going to be cheapish for me to shoot. Yeah, it was a bit of both. I knew that this subject matter and this story, I just knew that if I aimed to get have a budget that was like over a million dollars, it could take really long yeah. to do that, to acquire that. And I knew I wanted to make the film in this time period, especially with the election. At that time, Trump was being elected and there was just a lot of hatred. It did seem like spewed. a lot of filmmakers were like, OK, now or never. Like, Yeah, it was like, we have to do it now. And it added a sense of urgency, even though the idea was definitely not like inspired by him at all or in any way yeah. I always had this idea but the urgency of of telling this human story that involved muslim characters at this time was was elevated 
Um, and mm-hmm. I knew that we would be making a low budget film. My producer, Avril Speaks, and I just knew that that that's the kind of um, that's what we were we were going to get. If we got more, we would be just really grateful and it would have been, I think, a little easier for us. But we we went in knowing that we were making an a, a ultra low budget film. Yeah. And so. It didn't affect my writing in that I was like, okay, I'm just going to nix this, you know, this location, take out this because I wanted to be, you know, want us to be able to do it. I just wrote from the heart and I didn't I didn't let the budget limitation dictate my writing process, actually. Um, But I knew that this was a film that we would have a lot of locations and characters and I wasn't going to compromise that. So. Yeah, it was really our, my producer and the other producers who were able to work with me to get all the locations, get all of those those mm-hmm. um, actors and make it work in an 18-day shoot. And it was just really difficult. It was so difficult. Like, I would never want to make a film at that budget level again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really don't want to. If I have to, I will. But yeah. if I, I just... The thought of, like... Just the things of like having a location for two days and you know you need like five days in that location. Yes, yeah. And having to make cuts, you know, to to your shot list or things that you just really wanted to get that you can't get because you just don't have the time. It's just it's a real do you it have means, a, it's like, a heartbreak for anxiety a when you leave a location and you're like, Oh, I didn't get that shot. Well, at I think early on I knew that and and my DP and I had a great relationship where mm-hmm. he was able to work under some some real low budget constraints and still deliver some beautiful footage. And we get complimented all the time on on the cinematography. And I think that relationship really is what saved us. Having a kind of shorthand with my DP, mm-hmm. him knowing like what the priorities were for every scene, him having a love for the characters, for the story, for their faces, just like translated um to the screen and helped us kind of um, surpass the the budget restrictions that we that we had, but definitely went into it knowing it would be low budget film. I'm, uh, I mean, that brings me into something else that I wanted to talk about because Aronofsky, the way that he runs sets, he is notoriously ordered but chaotic. It's a it's a weird way of working where he he like. He knows exactly what he wants when he gets on set, but also doesn't know anything at all. He said, quote, there is some kind of there is some kind of myth about filmmakers who know exactly what they want and are going for. That might exist for some people, but that's not how I work. I try to get as many good people and as much good material around at one place on the set and create an environment that allows freedom so that the actors can develop things and mistakes can happen. Then I can follow my intuition and get to the right place. I think when you try to force something too much, you just squeeze the life out of it and then suddenly no matter what you do it just isn't real that's really you're nodding as i was saying yeah that. i'm i'm so a part of that school of filmmakers um, i think at some point you have to let go of the script you know you get into a location it has a certain energy it has a certain look you had some shots that you thought would work they don't work 
you know, work from work from the ground up, work from what you have. There's collaborator. All your collaborators are there. They have ideas. Yeah. I take their ideas. I take the actors ideas. I take my DP's ideas and we, we build something. I don't think you should be holding on to an idea that is not going to work. I think you should come in with a plan, but sometimes a plan is just not going to is not going to happen. So, I mean, that kind of blows apart some of the, you know, auteur theory that you get to, mm, uh, which yeah. I, you know, it's silly at this point. I can't believe that we're still talking about like auteur. And people always talk about Ar- Darren Aronofsky is just like, oh, you're like auteur. And he's just like, well, I mean, I collaborate with a lot of people. Yeah, it's really a collaboration. And you pick like the right people. He's, as he says, you know, the people that, that, you know, get to expound on your vision. Yeah. Can you give me any examples from when you were making J- of just a place where you realized that something wasn't going to work and then you had to do something else that turned out for the better? Yeah, we we actually have scenes where um, that were supposed to take place in a location, but we just we couldn't get that location again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we switched the scene to a different location, um, which changed the tone um, a lot in terms of like switching a scene from the mother's house to the father's house. Oh, yeah. Okay. So a, a, a really pivotal scene that involves like pancakes and like the family coming together. And we should tell people that they're they're separated. They're divorced. Yeah, they're and divorced. So they're, they have two different homes yeah. and there's two different vibes, two mm-hmm. different feelings to each of them. Yeah, and that scene was supposed to take place in the mother's home, and had I had a specific kind of idea for just the energy there and kind of everyone coming together there. But they come together in the father's home. And I think it it worked beautifully because that father character played by Dorian Missick, he is he's like the glue that mm-hmm. keeps them that keeps the two, the, the, the daughter and the mother together in a way, because mm-hmm. Summer's able to come to him and kind of have him as someone to talk to. And he's a, he's he's a present father, but it's just that they're divorced. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't live with him consistently. But I think having that scene in his home really did a lot for his character to show that he is a committed father and that he has a purpose in terms of their relationship and keeping them together. You know, I hadn't really thought about this before, but, you know, it is in in your film, you know, you do have a depiction of a quote unquote broken family that is also functioning family. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, not always depicted, I think, in film. You know, that sometimes divorce is good. And (laughs) yeah, I grew up with divorced parents. Yeah, I I can't even imagine my mother and father being married. I mean, they divorced when I was about three. Yeah. And so early on, it was very turbulent, you know, conversations with them would end in like some real bad arguments and I just knew that they weren't meant to be together and so I never felt like oh what if it worked out Um, and sometimes people just aren't meant to be together so I wanted to portray these two people that are, are not going to be together but they still co-parent yeah and you know that's they're raising the a is. good kid and you know it's yeah, it's you rarely see that. And then you look at Black Swan and you're like, what happened to the dad? Yes, and that's so interesting for me because growing up, for me, when I would watch a lot of movies that had like white families, mm-hmm. there was always a father or like, yeah, there was always a father figure. And it was very interesting to see a portrayal of that type of family and not see a father in the movie. Yeah. Um, and there's no mention of him like 
what happened to him or anything, which is really interesting. I mean, that speaks to my life because I grew up without a father and there's it was just women and that's Mm -hmm. it. And so I see that. And and it's something that is so automatic for me that I look at it and like, oh, that's normal. And then I think about I'm like, wait, where did the father go? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just think in those like those film, you know, just film after film that I was watching growing up, always like, oh, this is the family, Mm -hmm. mom, dad, children. Um, But I think it. I think all those deliberate, all those choices just make that movie even more powerful because that dynamic between, um, you know, Barbara Hershey and and Natalie Portman, it's it's just elevated. Like, it's like they all they're they're all they have. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, it's it's the correct impulse to not over explain those certain elements of your film, Mm -hmm. you know, to not, for instance, to not explain the pink in her room, to mm-hmm. not explain all the stuffed animals, to not explain where the father went. And I think that, you know, I mean, I have these urges, too. I think as a, as a person who writes movies, like, I want to explain these things because I want you to get it. But it's not always necessarily it's not necessary. You know, mm-hmm. you don't need that. And so much is cutting back. I think in your film, you have, uh, you know, you have a subtlety about that where you don't have to explain certain things, too, especially about her identity being split you know it's yeah nice to just see that visually represented definitely i didn't want the film to be like a psa and i didn't want the film to feel yeah. like this is islam this is you know like i just yeah. I, you know i think viewers are intelligent and i think it's there's a beauty in cinema to coming in with an interpretation um, oh, yeah. and being swept into a world and then kind of like letting that interpretation you know, um, inform viewing a film. And I I just think, you know, films like Black Swan, you know, they do that and they allow us to have, like, you can go online and read all of these audience kind of perspectives about Black Swan. Yeah. um, Because people come in with, like, what, you know, they come in with their own experiences and they project project that onto a film mm-hmm. or they you know there's mental health experts who wrote papers on Black Swan like there's all of these different things that people can bring into a movie and I just think that's really special the one thing um, that I wanted to close on here is that you know I'm one of the mind I'm one of the people who's in the mind that um, Aronofsky is actually a very funny director um, and I had the best time, for instance, watching Mother because I thought it was laugh out loud, over the top, so strange and comic in this very wry sense. And people will disagree with me, (laughs) I'm sure. But when Black Swan came out, Aronofsky did this normal ritual that he has of seeing the film once with a theater in a theater of regular people. And he was surprised and kind of delighted that people were laughing out loud. People were laughing out loud at Black Swan. And I myself also had like a guffaw where I was just like, whoa, you know, like these kind of shocking moments. And he he expected people to smile, but he didn't know he'd get the full on laughs. Alternately, when he watched the film with a European audience, people were stone faced. He got wow. nothing. And it was just a little unnerving for him because mm-hmm. that's, you know, he like he he didn't know what he had put into the film until he watched it later on. And he was just like, whoa, that's out there. And then he was like, you guys are not reacting to this in them. <laughs> you know, They were just so quiet. And I know that that must be like a little bit hellish for a director of not understanding, you know, how certain audiences will react and and how that will kind of um, 
translate into different places. But I mean, have you have you watched your film with an audience? Have yeah, you... several. Actually, I've sat in almost every screening we've had so far. And why? Yes. I'm just like, I, I don't know what it is for me. I'm just like, I'm still like protective of the movie. I know when the when it's in theaters, I'm not going to do it at all. But I would love to see you like at all the theaters. You're just like showing up to yeah, L.A. I'm theaters. Just like, just here. like, here's where you're supposed to cry. Yeah, and I'm like <laughs> sitting on the edge of my seat most of the time. I'm like so oh nervous. I'm like you know, almost sweating sometimes because we've had some real, like, packed screenings, sold-out screenings. Mm -hmm. We had a screening in Philadelphia that was just bananas. (laughs) We had a screening in Brooklyn that was really, like, packed to the walls like and so I I just I love to see how the audience responds to movies mm-hmm. even when I just go to movies I just I love the audience experience and I think that's why I go like you're watching a different movie you're watching the movie of the audience at this point yeah at the audience and they laugh a lot in my film do and... they laugh at places where you were like I did not expect that <laughs> sometimes sometimes and I think also there's there's spaces where people are uncomfortable and they're laughing. Exactly, yeah. And they're like, is this supposed to be happening? Like, we've never seen, like, you know, Muslims kiss. Like, you know, certain things like that where they're just like, okay, I'm just going to giggle because, you know, that's how I feel in the moment. So um, I love the laughter because I think, you know, I I wanted there to be some laughs. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some points where I wonder why people laugh. Yeah. Like I said about the kind of the intimacy and stuff, but I think maybe it's just the newness of the portrayal. Um, And then I've had experience where people are really quiet Mm -hmm. and I'm like, they just hate it. And I'm like, Uh, you know, digging my arm. I'm like, (laughs) any reaction. Give me any reaction. And so then after the Q&A, they're asking hundreds of questions. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe not all quiet crowds are disengaged. Maybe they're just. And I think also with the film being what it is. Sometimes people come in and they think, oh, it's this Muslim movie and it's about a a woman and it's going to be about oppression. I don't know. People just have these ideas. And I'm like, no, this is like a fun movie. But it's teenagers, like American teenagers. Like it's just a coming of age movie. And so I think all that influences like how audience responds. But I've definitely had across the board. I've experienced a quiet audience and the really rambunctious audience that's responding to every scene and um it as a director it tells me a lot about kind of like you know what people are you know how people connect to a movie to a story um we have our our international premiere at the bfi london film Mm -hmm. festival in Mm -hmm. october and i'm like i'm really interested to see how that you know how that goes um hearing how you know darren aronofsky (laughs) just unnerved like like, i don't know i'm kind of (laughs) expecting if no one laughs or does anything i mean i'm just i have no expectations i'm just like want to see like how how it goes okay but. well this is going to be very um your your movie gin is going to be in theaters when november november 15th it will be in select theaters and then on november 16th it will be streaming on some vod platforms um including itunes eventually amazon prime and some other ones but i'm not sure all the other ones um and so uh, you know if you're listening to this 
and you go and see this gin gin in the theater, be kind because <laughs> Nigella might be there. I won't be there. No, I'm she's, not going. She's going to be there. I'm not gonna be there. So I keep telling myself I'm not gonna go anymore, and then I just end up being wandering in there. the streets, going. <laughs> but I sit near the front because I was like, I cannot sit in the back and watch people on their phones. Like I just, I can't, I can't do it. Okay, you might actually see her there. You're screening. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we will read it on air. Nicole TP says, Ideal podcast. April is so knowledgeable and the guests are interesting and diverse. I feel like I am learned something new every episode about movies I already love or end up with a recommendation on one to check out. It's great hearing exclusively females speaking about genres that are overwhelmed with male voices. I wish there was more. Keep it up. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweeted us at switchblade pod or email us at switchblade sisters at maximumfun.org please check out our facebook group that's facebook.com slash groups slash switchblade sisters our producer is casey o'brien our senior producer is laura swisher and this is a production of maximumfun.org maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned listener supported